This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Bill Dorman, and today for Catherine Cruz. As you just heard on the headlines at the top of the hour, it is Judgment Day for the Alawai Canal. Well, maybe not quite that dramatic, but it is the day the public gets to hear details about the latest plans the Army Corps of Engineers have for protection against flooding. HPR's Casey Harlow has been following developments along the Alawai Canal for quite a while and joins us with more this morning. And so, Casey, the next step is a, uh, that public meeting tonight. Right, yeah. So tonight at 5.30 p.m., as Derek Malama has uh, mentioned, uh, there is going to be a virtual public meeting uh, with the Army Corps of Engineers and the city and county of Honolulu. Uh, basically, just uh, the latest in a years-long, maybe even decades-long effort to uh, protect uh, Waikiki and the Alawai watershed. Uh, I spoke with Eric Miriam who is the project lead with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers last week, and he kind of gave me a little bit of insight of what this project is all about and the latest developments as well. The main purpose of, of Monday's meeting is to provide an open forum uh, for community members to provide comments, feedback, ask questions regarding um, what we're calling the prospective plan prior to the release of the draft report in June or July. It's really valuable to have the study team in a forum like that to ask questions in real time and provide answers. And I also think it's really important for the community to come together in a forum such as this, because when the discussion is much broader, more ideas, more comments are generated. This does provide a very important update on the, the planning process, so the what we're calling the prospective plan, but also it's going to discuss the environmental compliance process. So, Casey, this is the Army Corps of Engineers, as you mentioned, has been working on this in stages and at in different ways over quite a bit of time now. Coming to this, yeah, correct. Um, you know this this latest iteration, it seems like, has been discussed uh, since 2017 when a lot of people, a lot of residents, especially upstream, mm-hmm. uh, voiced their opposition and their concerns. Uh, and according to Miriam, the last two years, uh, because it seems like it's the great resetting of things uh, yeah. with the pandemic, uh, the last two years, the Army Corps of Engineers went back to the drawing board, taking all the community concerns, all the considerations, all the previous plans and options to uh, kind of mitigate the effects of a 100-year storm on Waikiki and the following neighborhoods. That team that Miriam alluded to, they basically reviewed all those alternatives. They had more than 240 options, and they've narrowed it down to six back in December. And so today's tonight's study, uh, presentation of the study, will discuss those six options and will help the team further along in this process. And it's worth noting that right now, where this stands is that the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers has submitted an intent to submit an environmental impact statement, both with federal and state agencies. So this is progressing along. But in the meantime, this is all still tentative. A lot of people are still allowed to uh, provide comment, to review everything. And there's also a lot of other resources as well. If you go to honolulu.gov slash there's a lot of new tools, a lot of new uh, 
options for people to see the plans that uh, the Army Corps of Engineers is um, considering right now. And it's worth, again, the opposition was, uh, you know, building detention basins and other structures along the canal and in neighborhoods upstream. Mm -hmm. uh, that was like in Makiki, Pololo, uh, Tanalis area, even Manoa, you know. So this isn't just Waikiki or Macaulay. It's further upstream into these residential neighborhoods as well. And, and that's a really good point that people sometimes, uh, you know, this is not just folks along the Alawai. This is uh, upwards of 200,000 residents potentially impacted by these these plans. Exactly. And there was also fears, uh, and there was a case uh, that would have um, basically had eminent domain on some property owners, basically kicking homeowners off their property for the sake of building a structure that would have, mm -hmm. uh, you know, effects downstream. Obviously, nobody's going to be happy about that, especially here in mm -hmm. Hawaii with, uh, you know, housing prices the way they are. There's also the cost aspect of this, right? Mm -hmm. uh, originally, this uh, project was estimated around the $345 million range. Last year, there was estimates that skyrocketed uh, to uh, $651 million in that ballpark. And then, you know, back in 2019, a little bit more background and context, there was that push, right? Because there was... Um, there was um, fears that the federal government would pull their support uh, mm. for this uh, because they allocated some funds. And then uh, former Governor uh, Ige wanted to commit $125 million in state funds for this project to as an act of good faith. Um, but again, this is all um, within the process, with all within the um, new uh, going forward of things. And as a former resident uh, along the Alawai Canal, my parents still live around there. Uh, this will have tremendous impacts, even for residents along the canal. You know, we're also talking about impacts to recreation, uh, impacts uh, visually for some residents as well. They were originally uh, going to build 14-foot-high walls along the canal. And now they're talking generally six feet, although, again, local jurisdiction on some of these uh, calls, but that's what they've been, been talking about. Yeah. With a lot of these six feet. Right. And again, Miriam was saying that this whole process right now for the study is working towards a tentatively selected plan for the project. The tentatively selected plan is essentially a draft of what we believe will be the recommendation in the final report. The team has evaluated and compared those alternatives and has you know, arrived at what we're calling the perspective plan. So it's not quite the tentatively selected plan. We expect there to continue to be changes prior to the release of the draft report. Um, but we are going to be presenting what we call the perspective plan. Now, following this meeting, again, we will continue to work towards identifying the tentatively selected plan. Ultimately, uh, that plan will be released in a draft report. We expect the draft report to be released for public review sometime in the June, um, maybe July timeframe, barring any unforeseen circumstances that may delay the schedule. So the timeline is pretty stepped up. June, July is when they're expecting that uh, report to come out, and he estimates maybe uh, further progress starting next year. And the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers has to go through Congress again to get some more f uh, funding for the project. More funding. All right. Well, next up, uh, updates this afternoon. And uh, Casey Harlow, sticking with that story. Thanks so much. Casey Harlow, following developments to prevent flooding in the Alawai Canal. You can read his story online at hawaiipublicradio.org.
When you look at the world, do you see land or do you see water? And how do you see islands? And how do you see this world in a time of changing climate? Those are some questions posed by our guest this morning in a new book called Sea Change, an Atlas of Islands in a Rising Ocean. Christina Gerhardt is an associate professor and the founder of the Environmental Humanities Initiative at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. She's also held fellowships at Princeton, UC Berkeley, and visiting appointments at Harvard, Columbia, and elsewhere, and also has worked as an environmental journalist. Christina, welcome. Thanks for joining us today, and, and congratulations on your new book. Oh, thanks so much for having me on, Bill. It's great to join you this morning. I should mention that the book comes out next month. The title, again, Sea Change, An Atlas of Islands in a Rising Ocean. You know, I did get an advanced look at the book, and its unique approach, not only to the changes of climate change as they relate to islands, but also to a way, really, of thinking about the world. You start with the fact, just in your introduction, that atlases are being redrawn as islands are disappearing, and the importance of vantage point when it comes to thinking about islands. Talk a little bit about the importance of vantage point. Yeah, thanks for this question. Um, I came to this question of vantage point, I mean, living on an island, and the unique layers that your listeners will be familiar with, if, you know, living in Hawaii here, uh, you know, the layers of indigenous Hawaiians living here, and then people who have migrated here often for work or settler colonial communities. And then, of course, we have tourists who visit the islands, as well as members of the military who spend a certain amount of time here. And I was thinking about these layers, geological layers, if you will, of our communities that make up our communities on the one hand. On the other hand, I was thinking that this book will also be read by people on the continent who are often the the settler colonials or the tourists that come here. And so part of the project of the book was really to bring life on the islands to people who are living predominantly on continents and the, the kinds of concerns that islanders are facing to this audience, but really to, to bring those stories from an islander perspective. You talk about some of those different perspectives of the, the explorer or the adventurer, and you combine with, with arts and humanities as well in terms of, of literature and in the imagination that, that people have and, and bring to their conception of islands as opposed to those who who live on islands and and how that difference is in in a way of seeing the world i think that that vantage point be it a disciplinary vantage point that you're getting at or a geographic vantage point is really important to sea change so one of the backstories of sea change um, people often think that this comes out of me living in Hawaii and working at UH Manoa, but it actually predates that. So when I was working previously, and I still do this as, as I get the opportunity to, when I cover the annual UN climate negotiations when I work as an environmental journalist, here's what I see. 198 nations, they step up individually and then as part of their cluster. So in UN speak, that would include things like the Africa Group, the Alliance of Small Island States, Least Developed Countries, or LDCs. And before they weigh in on whatever point is up for negotiation, they talk about the situation in their home countries at that moment. So last year it was Pakistan. It was the floods that inundated a third of the country, impacted 33 million people, unleashed $30 billion of damage, killed 1,500 people, over half of which were children. And so 
as I've been covering these climate negotiations since 2009 in Copenhagen, what you come away with after those two weeks is a really visceral sense of what's going on around the world in frontline communities. And then when you walk away from the conferences and you look at the media, what you typically see is a focus on the U.S.-China standoff. And I, I want to be very clear, I don't think that's unimportant or uninteresting for these negotiations, but it occludes from view the situation of people in frontline communities. So I decided to focus on sea level rise in particular and its impact versus other climate change issues one could address. And I decided to focus on the geographic space of islands versus other uh, spaces one could talk about. And then to cycle back to your question, this interdisciplinary approach is what I decided to bring in. And the reason is simple. We have enough scientific studies that share the impacts of sea level rise. This is really an issue of communications. Mm. And between my experience covering the UN negotiations and my work in the environmental humanities, I came up with this interdisciplinary approach. So it really weaves together three fields, environmental studies and environmental humanities, firstly. Second, geography and cartography. There's a lot of maps. And then thirdly, creative nonfiction and islanders' poetry. And the book combines really not only those threads, but also research with illustrations, with data graphics, as well as the maps themselves. And some of that goes to the pace of sea level rise right now and the unexpected, in some quarters, pace of how that is progressing. Right, absolutely. I think that pace is really crucial. So the the maps in change are by cartographer Molly Roy um, and by heritage she's from the Bangladesh region which is a highly impacted region the in-house designer at University of California Press Leah Chandra who is herself also from Islander heritage she made she made all of all of the book look so beautiful in its overall formation but I think your question about the pace is really important because as I was working with these two colleagues to create the book we constantly talked about how to keep the maps up to date And your listeners may have heard in a study that was published just last week in the journal Earth Systems Science Data, they found that ice sheets at the North and the South Pole, so Greenland and the Antarctic specifically, are melting three times as fast as in the previous decades. And that accounts for a significant increase in global mean sea level. So there's a number of things, you know, about that study that was just put out last week that are important. It, alongside an NPR uh, study, brought attention to the fact that what happens at the poles doesn't stay at the poles. I don't need to emphasize this for Mm. listeners who are in the Pacific who probably know this. That's the source of that melt is the source of the sea level rise that we are experiencing. So we're all connected is one of the lessons there. But the question about geography that you raised at the outset, you know, three quarters of our planet is water is another thing that sea change this book is trying to bring to the forefront. Something else that our listeners in Hawaii certainly will be familiar with is the presence of the U.S. military on islands here, but on islands generally. You point out that the U.S. military has at least 52 bases or installations on islands worldwide. And the impacts are many, but relatively briefly of hitting some highlights, if you could, on that area. 
Sure. Yeah, I thought it was really important to mention that. I mean, you you already acknowledged the fact that islanders uh, here in in Hawaii will be familiar with this or in other territories of the U.S. in the Pacific. There's a big paragraph that outlines, lists basically all of those different uh, military bases. I thought it was important to highlight this issue for a number of reasons. Firstly, what caught my eye was that a number of years ago, the Department of Defense actually demanded a study of the impact of sea level rise. And this was while uh, climate denialism, which thankfully has has sort of dropped off the radar and been replaced with uh, climate dithering, is what one can call it, um, when that was still at the forefront. So they demanded a study be done on the impact of sea level rise. And the simple reason was that they knew they were going to be impacted in terms of their infrastructure. And so I think I think that's really important to be mindful of in terms of the, the funding mechanisms of the studies of sea level rise. But I think, you know, COVID also provided a remarkable opportunity for rethinking some of our economies. Tourism is also going to be impacted. Again, I don't need to belabor that point in Hawaii, which is, aside from the military, one of our major motors. And this is true not only for the Pacific through the Compact of Free Association Agreements. This impacts, obviously, Guahan, the Marshall Islands, uh, the Federated States of Micronesia, so places in the Pacific where we have bases. Um, Also, places in the Caribbean are impacted by this. But we have an opportunity here to really rethink how we want to structure our economies. So if we want to have different self-sustaining economies, what are those engines going to be, if, if you want to use that uh, analogy, which we might not want to do, but how are you going to re- restructure island economies so that they're more self-sustaining? Christina Gerhardt, Associate Professor and Founder of the Environmental Humanities Initiative at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. Her book, Sea Change, An Atlas of Islands in a Rising Ocean, coming next month from University of California Press. Christina, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me on, Bill. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. In today's Backyard Quiz, we're sifting through the annals of jazz history, remembering the Hawaii-born musician who once led the Hawaiian Dixieland All-Stars. That was before his talents caught the attention of jazz great trumpeter Louis Armstrong. The Waipahu drummer had been playing professionally since the age of 18 and was introduced to Statchmo by his good friend Trummy Young in 1956. 
A couple of years later, he formally joined Armstrong's All-Stars Band, replacing retiring drummer Barrett Deems. Affectionately called the Little Hawaiian Boy by Armstrong, our mystery percussionist created a sound that was recognizable by extensive use of the ride cymbal, clean fills, and asymmetrical soloing, like this. You can hear him play on famous Armstrong tunes, What a Wonderful World, Hello Dolly, and many others. For today's Backyard Quiz, who is this drumming son of Hawaii? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right wins a reusable HPR tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing homeless families with access to affordable housing, such as Women in Need on Kauai. NairitHawaii.com. Wonderful world and a beautiful planet. April is a month where the Earth gets a little more attention than usual. This past Saturday marked the 53rd observance of Earth Day. There were activities around the islands. Maybe you went to one of them, from beach cleanups to other gatherings. And this is also the last week of Native Hawaiian Plant Month. These are both reminders of the vulnerability of our natural world and the crucial role of the people who help protect it. As part of our series with the Center for Oral History at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, we're hearing some of their voices this month. Today, UH Ethnic Study Professor Tai Kavika Tengen makes the introductions. Rose Freitas Cambra was born and raised on the Hawaiian commercial and sugar plantation in Pu'unene'e Maui. She and her husband Raymond Freitas volunteered in the Haleakala Park for over 60 years, and she is recognized as an honorary park ranger. Raymond took me first into the crater in 1951. He says, oh, it's a must, Rose. I must take you to Kaupo Gap because there's Miley down the gap, and let's make lace for our hats. So we went, picked the Miley, and came back, and he taught me how to make Miley lace. My first time that I learned how to make Miley lace. And he said that's where he usually hunt goats, in that flat, little flats here and there. The goats are always around that area. I was just intrigued to learn how they made Miley, how they smashed it with a stone. Then you have to pull it off the vein that's inside and use just the soft part. And he taught me how to join it together and get three strands and then weave the three strands. You stand up and you just shake it around and it, it kind of weaves itself enough the length for the land to go around. It can even go around twice to make it look fuller. Oh, I was so happy to learn how to do my lilies. We would go all the time. We would always take a ride through the gap and we'd go sometimes. Most of the time we went as far as the boundary. There was an old gate there and that was the old boundary. But I understand there's a new boundary now. 
Walter Poo was born and raised in Hanamaui, where his family has lived for seven generations. He has worked in the Kipohulu district of Haleakala Park for over 20 years. Most of us are Ohana. In the Kipohulu district, it was a big living area. We are sons of many generations from this area, all of us. And so for, to operate down here, this is not only home, this is our backyard. It is where we work and this is what we take care of and that's what we do as an occupation. But this is our home. The pools of Oheo, aka the, the seven pools, was never a number on them on the PPY Trail. It was a place of recreation, family, a place of food gathering, but also a place of learning. Yeah, where your grandfather would talk about this certain plant. If you get hurt, you take this plant, you take the sap, you rub it up here. This is all educational. Yeah, you had the summit district, which is more of your geology and the as quarries. You have the the bird catchers in the slopes of Haleakala. You have the studies of observation, navigation. That was the purpose of the mountain was used for the ancient people, like classrooms, yeah. So this is, this is one big university. Botanist Dr. Rhonda Lowe started working at the Hawaii Volcanoes National Park in 1992, where she is now the superintendent. She was born and raised on Oahu and started visiting the park in summers when she stayed with grandparents in Hilo. I first started working down in the coastal lowlands, which is Pili grasslands, and I thought I really liked it there. And then I remember when I first had a project in the rainforest, I was like, oh. And I ended up loving working in the rainforest and Ala'a and the East Rift and learning all the species of ferns and the plant. I love being immersed in nature where you're not near other evidence of man. I think the times I really enjoyed myself the most is when I was by myself in the middle of nowhere and just like be part of something so much bigger than you. That's important, knowing there's something so much bigger than you. And that's one thing I love about the nature in Hawaii and every place has a different feel and for me when I'm in Hawaii in nature I always feel that I can surrender myself to it and I don't always get that in other places but I get it here. That was Rose Freitas Camber, Walter Poo, and Rhonda Lowe with ethnic studies professor Taika Tengen and stories about protecting the environment in this final week of Native Hawaiian Plant Month. This oral history project is supported by the SHARP initiative of the National Endowment for the Humanities through the American Council of Learned Societies. Support for HPR comes from Hakuone in Kaka'ako Makai, where OHA plans to create a Hawaiian space in an urban setting, committed to building a neighborhood where all are welcome and where Hawaiian culture thrives. Hakuone.com. Today on The Daily, why a closely watched plan to create a democracy in Sudan has instead turned into a deadly civil war. We look at the personal rivalry at the center of the conflict. I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Beginning this afternoon at 1.30.
Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Community Foundation, committed to an equitable and thriving Hawaii, supporting initiatives such as affordable housing, fresh water, and the healthy development of young children. HawaiiCommunityFoundation.org. Oil prices have started the week with slight gains, up about a dollar a barrel in overseas trading. Higher energy prices in general, that's one concern for Hawaii residents when it comes to the economy, but there also may be some good news on the horizon. Stuart Yurton writes about that in today's Honolulu Civil Beat and joins us now with more. Thanks for coming on today, Stuart. Uh, thanks, Bill. So inflation, we know it's a, it's a national issue, it's a global issue, but your story today shows how it shows up in particular ways here in uh, here in Hawaii. Yes, that's right. So you know uh, what we're really facing here is uh, kind of a double whammy right now. We still have inflation is is very high. Um, prices for a number of essentials has gone up since before the pandemic. Um, and we'll talk about that a bit more later specifically, but also people are facing uh, the pain of increased costs of borrowing money, basically, uh, namely things like credit card debt, uh, the interest rates gone up, uh, buying a car, interest rates, again, so high, I'm not sure a lot of people are buying cars, and same with homes, and really anything with the, any kind of adjustable or variable interest rate, it's going up and putting a further squeeze on people. And Stuart, you mentioned that in terms of the, the idea of almost the the delayed impact of interest rate rises at some point because people will hear on the news, oh, the Fed is moving, the Fed is moving again, and they're, they're going higher. But it's, you, you don't get that, that instant next day reaction like you might in, say, a stock market or something. But for it to, to filter down really to, to people dealing with those higher, as you mentioned, the higher credit card rates, for example, takes time to filter through to the economy. That's right. And these things are really getting traction. If you recall, and we mentioned in the story uh, about a, you know, last summer, uh, the Fed chairman, Jerome Powell, was at a conference in, in Wyoming and said, uh, we know this is going to be painful for people um, and uh, households and businesses, but we are going to increase interest rates because the alternative is to continue to have higher prices for everything, um, these, these escalating inflationary prices, and, and, and that alternative would be worse than the pain of it being more expensive to borrow money. And as you, you know, alluded to at the beginning, I mean, for instance, electricity here, um, since before the pandemic, people are paying on Oahu, 35% more than uh, now than they were before the pandemic. Gasoline prices up more than 50% since before the pandemic. Uh, food at home, uh, essentially groceries, up 22%. So that's really the bad news. So on top of you know the, this inter these interest rate increases really starting to get traction and put a squeeze on people, you've still got high prices. Now the good news. The prices seem to be leveling off. Um, that's what the the price increases, at least, are leveling off. I'm not sure if they'll ever go down, but 
this inflation locally for key essentials like food, electricity, and gasoline seems to be leveling. So that's the good news. That's that. That's good to be finding some good news within this one. In terms of impact, you know, one thing that you point out in your piece that uh, I found very interesting. You talked about the uh, the impact on credit card debt, and here in Hawaii, compared to to other states, that's a that's a relatively significant um, chunk for a lot of households. Yes, that's right. Uh, we have um, one of the higher. Uh, uh, amounts that we carry on our credit cards here. Again, I think it has to do with the cost of living. Um, when you compare us to other places, we're really one of the um, in the top ten, uh, you know, seventh nationally according to this uh, Lending Tree study that was uh, gathered from uh, Federal Reserve Bank of New York uh, data. And um, so we're at, on average eighty five hundred dollars. Uh, people are carrying. And again, if interest rates on that go up, you can suddenly see a minimum payment increasing from, you know, by hundreds of dollars a month. And one interesting point, also, a lot of your uh, your piece deals with the uh, with that consumer level debt, and and very important, as you say, from from credit cards to car loans, but also that that impact on small business and on aspects at a time when when prices are going up, for example, for food prices for people in the food business, but also labor challenges uh, as well can can make for a challenging combination. Oh, for sure. And again, the Fed chairman talked about that when he when he predicted the pain, and he did use the word pain, uh, he said it would be felt by, bus- by small businesses, businesses in general, and um, as well as consumers. And yeah, it's for businesses, it's a really tough time. It's more expensive to borrow money, um, revolving credit, the things that businesses might use to get by month to month is going to be more expensive. Plus, they're trying to hire people. <laughs> Apparently, you know, we hear so much they need to pay more to get workers to, to come to work. And it's just a really big squeeze on businesses as well. But again, the idea is to slow down the economy. So that that goal is a progress towards that goal, and as you said in your uh, in your headline, good news may be looming in terms of that leveling off of inflation. Yes, good news looming, but for right now, uh, I guess the story is the pain the fair ch- the Fed chairman predicted is here. All right, Stuart Yurton, thanks so much for uh, for being with us today. You yes, can, thank you so much. You bet. You can read Stuart's story at Civil Beat. Pranabardhan says the world is becoming disenchanted with the concept of democracy and that liberal leaders refuse to take seriously one of the reasons why that's happening. One of the reasons the working classes are turning right is that the left or the liberals are not uh, emphasizing these cultural issues. That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the Daily.
can someone stay upbeat when their loved ones receive devastating diagnoses and they're just trying to keep going? I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk with author Leanne Chong about her firsthand experience in dealing with medical difficulties and how she found her way through. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. Support for HPR comes from Ruby Tuesday Hawaii, offering dine-in and take-out daily at its restaurants in Kapolei, Mililani, Moanalua, and Kaneohe. Catering available for business meetings and events, rubytuesdayhawaii.com. In the world of jazz, the band is just as important as the front man, and every instrument is crucial. If you got the chops and can keep up, you can play. That means world-class talent can come from anywhere. Still, not many know that a white Pahu boy filled the drum chair for Louis Armstrong's All-Stars for more than a decade. The little Hawaiian boy, as Satchmo called him on the bandstand, was born to sugar workers in 1929 went on to play jazz around the world. His playing can be heard on classic Armstrong recordings such as What a Wonderful World and Hello Dolly. After the All-Stars disbanded in 1971, this local drummer returned to the islands to play with Bernie Hallman at the Hilton Hawaiian Village. He taught drum set and worked at Harry's Music in Kaimu Key until 1979 when he moved to California. He spent the rest of his days there until he passed in 2007. We asked you earlier in the program who he was. We do need a drum roll, please. It's Danny Barcelona. Scott Robinson of St. Louis knew that. He's a Louis Armstrong fan. Proud to join that group myself. That is today's quiz. If you've got a backyard quiz, you can send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Our little drummer man, Danny Barcelona. Coming up with a solo and storming at the Savoy, Danny. Works from three Big Island artists moving from music to other art, now on exhibit at the First Hawaiian Center in downtown Honolulu. The show is titled Hawaii intersecting flows and features artwork inspired by elements of land and sea. Opportunities for neighbor island artists to be featured outside their communities are few and far between. So the conversations Russell Subiono sat down with one of the artists, Waimea resident Margot Ray. They talked about how she shapes her artistic expression and how aspiring artists can find their voices. In your artist statement, you said that growing up and living on an island creates a sense of isolation. And I'm thinking maybe even more so if you're on a less populated island and less industrialized island. Can you talk about what that isolation feels like or looks like? Sure, absolutely. And, you know, isolation, sometimes I feel like it's a negative connotation, but in my mind, it's more of a, a positive one in a sense of solitude and peace rather than loneliness. And living in Waimea in particular is almost kind of an island within an island. 
in an island chain because we are so far from so many other communities surrounded by open spaces. So that sense of isolation to me is um, kind of a sense of peace and almost, you know, an ability to connect with the natural surroundings around me. I would agree with you that there is this sense of isolation, but it's not a negative one. It's one that is more of a building kind of feeling or more of a restorative kind of feeling. And in a lot of my pieces, I go out to places, I go hiking, I stop on the side of the road and go exploring somewhere and really kind of seek out places that I'm drawn to and feel connections to and take photographs while I'm there and look for structures and things kind of discarded by humans or built by humans that bear kind of these layers of marks upon them of the people that built them or the people that come upon them and the animals and the plants that kind of create these layers. And then I kind of then come back to my studio and digest that experience and look at all the photos that I took and think about my time there and kind of compose these more imagined landscapes. So they're not, you know, literal depictions of a place, but more these images that I've collected, memories that I've collected, and like how I then kind of reinterpret that place in my artwork. How do you go from taking your experience and translating it onto the canvas or, or onto the media that you're working on? Well, I um, I started out in printmaking, so in my kind of artistic training, and I was really drawn to printmaking because you can use different photographic processes and chemical processes to take photographs through like translations and transitions and kind of make them your own and compose them into a new artwork. And I don't do traditional printmaking anymore, but I compose things in Photoshop on my computer first so I can get a sense of scale. And then I print them out on a Kozo paper that's on a, on a uh, archival inkjet printer. So I then can print things to scale and then I hand cut all of the photographs and then I layer them onto surfaces that I've painted. And then we'll often layer other types of transparent papers and textured papers to build up different textures and kind of get sense of of depth and then kind of modify the photograph even more. And then I think there's also something interesting that I I use an iPhone photography and the cameras are so sophisticated now and we're also so accustomed to looking at the world through our phones and So I think that becomes another layer of like how so many people see the world now, too, is through their phones and through that type of photography. One thing I think you do a really skillful job of in your pieces is capturing the texture of the open or empty spaces in in your pieces. So there's this kind of photographic element to it, but there's also an element that is clearly the work of your hands. And Mm -hmm. yeah. Is that something that you do on purpose? Yes, I think so. I mean, like, you know, the sky here is just such a a strong presence or the ocean. You know, it's like we're often like looking out into these vistas just with these big, big open skies or big horizon lines. And so I like to leave that sense of openness in my work and, you know, use a lot of times really strong colors and really kind of push that sense of breath or air openness. 
and I feel like the color and the content and the expression of a lot of your pieces are very bright and it feels like they have a lot of positive tone to them. Is that something that you want to get across in your artwork? Do you ever do any artwork that maybe deals with maybe darker emotions? Well, I think the use of the structures that are kind of in this state of decay expresses that, that kind of side of death, of ending, of things changing. And so I like that juxtaposition of the bright kind of intense colors along with the kind of death and decay and that kind of expression of the paradox of life, really, you know, if I use like barbed wire and old tires that have been discarded or kind of rock that's crumbling or wood that's crumbling. And so, yeah, I would say I like the tension between those two things. I think that really is what makes your pieces very, very unique, especially when it comes to the water tank pieces. I think Mm -hmm. those seem to be like your signature subject of your pieces. Can you talk about what you see when you see them? Are they kind of a symbol of this island solitude? Is there a story from the first time that you saw one and felt like this was something that should be in my art piece? Yeah, I mean, I've used them for so many years now, and I can't even remember the first ones I've seen. I think they're just been part of the landscape that I've grown up around, and a lot of them here are kind of in open spaces, you know, out on ranch lands. And they're almost like kind of islands in and of themselves. And these kind of almost temple-like structures holding this precious life source of water. And a lot of times we'll have ladders going up higher than they need to be that looks like this poetic expression. You know, I don't know why that they're like that, but almost like they're reaching up to the sky or to the heavens. And so I've used that over the years. I think it's almost the self-portrait in a way, too, of feeling, you know, sometimes you have your exterior self and your interior self and the tension between expression and being able to kind of share your thoughts or express those things. And then over the years, a lot of them have become, that I've photographed, have gone more and more into a state of decay. And I come upon empty ones more often than I come upon full ones. And so, again, it's this representation of a changing economy, a changing landscape, and changing times that we're all a part of. And I feel like Waimea is full of those kinds of things, right? Not just water tanks, but I see rock walls probably from the earliest Paniolo days and Uh other structures. You know, think about a lot of the kind of dilapidated structures that we remember growing up. There was that one building next to the liquor store that's not there anymore, but I just remember. Yeah, the Iota store. Yeah. Yeah. And is that kind of your thing? Do you like breathing new life into some of these old structures? Yeah, absolutely. And everyone kind of brings a story to it, like their memory of it or their association maybe with another structure like that. And then just the physicality of like the lichen growing on things and moss and the colors and kind of like nature taking back, you know, so it's like everything kind of in a cycle. You have a very unique style, very identifiable style. How did you come to the place where you're able to transfer your identity into your artwork? And how can other artists, what can they take away from your journey to use to help them get to that place as well? Oh, that's an interesting question. I think just sticking with it and putting in the time in the studio and, you know, like I said, I started out learning different printmaking techniques and 
spent many years doing that and then just over time developing more of my own style and my own techniques and just really kind of trusting in that journey and I like to give myself like a series of like the water tanks you know it's something that I do over and over again but how can I make it different each time but I think that that kind of discipline and dedication will nurture an artist style and sense of their kind of own artistic voice over time. Margot, thanks so much for talking to me. I know that you're part of an exhibition at the First Hawaiian Bank building on Oahu. Can you give us the details about that exhibit? Yes, through August 19th. And it's a three-person exhibition with myself and Carl Pau and Jisoo Boggs. So we are all live on Hawaii Island in different parts of the island. And I'm sure many people are familiar with each of their work. Carl's a painter and Jisoo works in ceramics. So the three of us will have our work there together for for almost four months. Thank you so much for your time, Margot. Really enjoyed talking to you. Okay, thank you so much, Russell. That was Waimea artist Margot Ray talking with HPR's Russell Subiono. As she mentioned, she is one of the featured artists of the Hawaii Intersecting Flows exhibit at the First Hawaiian Center on Oahu, along with Jisoo Boggs and Carl Powell. Their works will be on display through August 19th. That's the program for today. Tomorrow, a special call-in show on a controversial topic. Hawaii residents can now legally carry a concealed firearm as long as they have the proper permitting. Hundreds have applied, so who gets approved? And what kind of restrictions should be in place about where those guns can go? Representatives from Every Town for Gun Safety, the Hawaii Rifle Association, and the Honolulu Police Department will discuss this issue, and we'd like to hear from you. Call our talkback line at 808-792-8217 or email talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Your question or comment may be used during tomorrow's panel discussion with guest host Yunji Denise. I'm Bill Dorman. We'll be back tomorrow with more of The Conversation.